Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray as we do every week, every time we open your word, that you instruct us through the Holy Spirit. That it is not our intelligence, it is not our uh, ability that counts, but it is you speaking to us. And we pray that you'll continue to always guide us as you do today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're looking at Malachi chapter 2 verse 10. Now the question I want to begin with today is, uh, when is a car not a car? What a strange question that is, right? When is a car not a car? And I think uh, this question was asked by another pastor that I heard uh, in a sermon, saying that he went to a car show. And uh, you know one of those big car shows, probably like held at the expo or something. He saw a car, and he got in, you know, he was filling around, it had chairs, it had a chassis, it had a bonnet, it had a boot, it had mirrors and everything, and it had a windscreen. But then when he went on to the front, there was no engine. Right? So then he asked himself, is this really a car? Because the point of a car is to get you from point A to point B, right? If, if, if uh, this thing can't get you from point A to point B, it's not really a car. It, it only looks like a car. It looks like a car from the outside, but there's no engine on the inside. It's like a fake and phony car. And I think that uh, I want you to keep that in mind as you listen to this passage by Malachi, because that is sort of the situation that's happening uh, in the time of Malachi. And uh, exactly why is this happening? Well, a bit of background. Remember last week, uh, God had uh, accused uh, the priests of uh, his people of failing to honor and respect him. And uh, how were they not honoring and respecting and fearing God? It was because the priests were not sacrificing the, the appropriate animals uh, to God. They were sick, they were blind, they were, they were injured. But also, remember last week, the priests were not teaching the people correctly. They were not giving true instruction. They were showing partiality in matters of the law. They were only teaching part of the law. And today, uh, we see how that plays out in the life of God's people, the Israelites. Because they are living on the outside as if they are God's people, but inside there's no engine going. So we begin in verse 10 by seeing in verse 10, it says, how, uh, sorry, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? So the first question that's being asked, and remember in the book of Malachi, God always has this uh, situation where he asks a question, and then the people respond, and then he re- replies again. So he's asking, you know, a, a very obvious question, have we not all one father? Right? Malachi is asking, he's asking God is asking through Malachi, do we, do we not have one God that creates us? Now who is this we here in verse 10? Well, the we here is not the priest, but the we here is a different audience now. It is God's people. They are asking, do we not have one father? And who is this father? Uh, the father here uh, could be someone like Abraham, Father Abraham. The father here could be uh, Jacob, who was later named Israel. But I think I agree with your NIV translation, where the father is a capital F. Right? You notice that in your NIV, uh, NIV translations. I don't know what your translation might have, but mine has a capital F. And it actually recognizes that the father here is not Abraham and is not Jacob, but it is God. And I think that makes the most sense of the passage, because as we always say, context is the most important thing. So the father here is not a human person, but the father is God, because who is the father of God's people? It is God himself. And that's why if you look up here on the slide, I've just sort of... uh, printed out for you a few passages from uh, the book of Malachi. It it fits the context. Because right at the very beginning, 
of Malachi, God says, I have loved you, but I've hated Esau. And because he has loved Jacob, he has made them his people. Remember, he has made them his people. So he's the father of the nation of God's people, Israel. And also in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, a son honors his father. And again, that's himself, right? And it ties in with this passage here in chapter 2, verse 11, because later on he accuses God's people, the Jews, of marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So God's people are not sons and daughters of a foreign god. They are sons and daughters of God. He is their father. And that's why when it goes on to say, did not one God create us, it's not actually asking a different question. It's actually asking the same question. So he's saying, have not we all one father? Yes, it is the Lord God in heaven, right? Did not one God create us? Yes, it is the same God. And I think that's a very, very important point that he's trying to make, is that they are one family, one united people. Okay, we're not, not talking about Singapore here, right? Talking about God's people, they're all united because God created them and God is their father. And therefore, because they are united and bound in this way under one family, one father, one creator, to be responsible or faithful to God, they have to be faithful to one another. And that's why it says that, you know, why do you profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now the word here, profane, uh, literally means to degrade, uh, to, um, uh, to, to drag through the mud uh, something, right? So the covenant is very important. And the covenant was something which provides a structure by which God relates to his people. Now the covenant is not a promise, it's not an agreement, it's a contract. It's, a, it's like an unbreakable vow between God's people and himself, and God and himself. And the, the foundation for the covenant is, is like the Ten Commandments. Okay, if you look up here, this is the Ten Commandments. And what I want you to notice is, in the covenant that God makes with His people, uh, half of the covenant is about a relationship, the rules between God and His people, but half of the, the Ten Commandments is about rules between people and people, God's people, between the family of God. So you see that in the first five commandments, I sort of highlighted it for you, so I'm cheating, right? But, but you see here, the first commandment is, okay, actually I should do a test, or I should... I should ask you what the Ten Commandments is to know, see whether you know it by heart. Okay, but the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Okay, go on, how, how to make an idol. Third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Okay, next one. Okay, and then, um, okay, so... So you, you notice that the first few commandments was all about God and the relationship between God and His people. But the second half of the Ten Commandments is all about a relationship between people and people. Right? So it says here, you should honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything of your neighbor's. And that's why Jesus, uh, later on, when he was questioned, as in, what does the law and the prophets actually summarize? What do they mean? He goes on to say this. Right? So Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's why God is trying to make this point that 
because he is the Father, because he is God, they are bound as a family and their relationship to him is shown by their relationship to each other. And it's a very fundamental Old Testament understanding. It's not like rocket science. So if I say to you, 2 plus 2 is what? 5. No, it's 4, right? Okay. And 5 plus 5 is 10. And uh, we all recognize this, right? We all learned this in primary school. And, and they would have known this, uh, the Jewish people, that to be faithful to God, they need to be faithful to one another. But unfortunately, they were not doing that, right? Because in verse 10 and verse 11, it says there that they are breaking faith with one another. And in verse 11, it says, Judah has broken faith. And that's why it says there that they have profaned the covenant of our fathers. Profane means that they've desecrated it. It's like they've taken it and dragged it to the mud. And I don't know about uh, the NIV, but other translations say uh, that this word breaking faith, they translate it as treacherous as acting falsely. And if you look at this uh, passage, five times that word is used, breaking faith, acting treacherously, acting falsely one another. And I think that's the first thing that we have to learn, okay? And that's the first thing we have to understand. You see the people sitting around you? Uh, They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. And if we break faith with one another, if we act treacherously with one another, we act falsely with one another, we are actually acting falsely with God, we are breaking faith with God. It's the same principle today as it was then, uh, more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, look at what it says there in the book of John and 1 John. And look at what Jesus says. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must. It doesn't say you consider loving. You must love one another. By, all the, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that's the first point. that I, I mean, it's only one verse, right? But the first point that I think we, we must understand that there is no point being a stickler on religious things, right? You can dot all the I's and cross all your T's, you come to church, you read your Bible, you pray, uh, you, uh, you, know, you serve, but if you do not act in a faithful way with other people, you act treacherously, you act falsely, then you're acting falsely and treacherously towards God because you are you're breaking the relationship of His people. And that's why people often say, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is a relationship we have with God through Jesus, but it is also shown in our relationship with one another. How we treat one another shows the state of our relationship to God. We are all one family. That's why we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want you to consider for a second, how do you treat other Christians? How do you treat your brothers in Christ? How do you treat your sisters in Christ? Are you treacherous with them? Are you acting falsely? Or do you act faithfully? And are you keeping faith with them and, and, and wanting to do what's good for them? Or do you lie to them or undermine them or gossip about them or destroy them or hurt them? Because by doing so, we're actually undermining our relationship with God. Now, obviously, when we look at this passage, God uses that principle of a family 
and being united and tied with one another, and expresses how Judah has broken faith in terms of very, a very specific uh, example in marriage. He gives two examples in marriage. In verse uh, 11 to verse 12, he gives the problem of intermarriage. And in, in, in verse 13 to 16, he gives the problem of broken marriages. So in verse 11, he goes on to say, Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Now, exactly what has Judah done? Exactly what has God's people done? It says there in verse 11 that they have married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, this is a very important phrase, right? He doesn't say they have married foreigners. He doesn't say they have married pagans or aliens. He uses the word a daughter of a foreign god. Now, this is a very uh, interesting phrase. Why does he call it like that? Why does he use that phrase? It's the language of idolatry, you see. To, to be called the daughter of a foreign god means their loyalty and their allegiance is to another god. See, God does not have any problems with uh, God's people marrying people of other races, other cultures, other genetic DNA code. Right? Uh, in the book of Ruth, if you ever have the time, uh, you can look at the Old Testament. There's a book called Ruth, which is only four chapters long, so it's very short. And Ruth was actually a, a Moabite. Uh, next slide, she was, this is Israel. God's people live here. She's a Moabite. She lives, she's from here. She's a foreigner. She's culturally different from the Jews. But yet in Ruth, she marries a, a Jewish person called Boaz. And God blesses their marriage. Because God is not against marrying foreigners or people who are culturally different or nationally different. But what he is saying here is, he is against God's people marrying other people whose allegiances or whose loyalties do not belong to him. They, are not, they do not recognize God as their father. They, they belong to another foreign God. And in Israel's history, God has said over and over again in, in their covenant, that they must never ever marry uh, people whose allegiances belong to another god. So in Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, it says this, and I want you to pay close attention because we're going to be coming back to this passage, right? God says, when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Exodus chapter 34. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take your, their daughters for your sons. So, obviously, it's not just a one-way traffic, right? It's not just guys taking girls, but it's, it's both ways. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, the situation here in the book of Malachi uh, is that we know that it was a very widespread practice that the whole of uh, God's people were, were, were intermarrying with other uh, people who believed in other gods. And as a result, 
God's threat and God's warning was actually coming true. So Ezra, okay, in the next uh, passage, Ezra was actually written um, maybe one or two generations before Malachi. And I want you to pay attention as to how widespread this intermarriage problem was. So after these things had done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. The leaders and officials have led them away in this unfaithfulness. Now I want you to pay attention to that, okay? Keep that in mind as you look at the Bible here because that's exactly what is happening here in the book of Malachi in verse 11. It says here that Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. They've done a detestable thing. And they have desecrated the sanctuary, some people say, is it the temple? It could be the temple, but many people think the sanctuary is actually God's people. Right? They have brought these people who follow other gods into God's people, and they have led people astray, and therefore they have desecrated. The word desecrated means they have taken something holy and made it unholy. Which is exactly what Ezra says, right? They have mingled the holy race with the people around them and they've led them astray. And I want you to look at the passage again and pay attention very closely with the, the, the strength of God's words. Look, look what it says there. They have done a detestable thing. The word detestable here is always used in terms of idolatry. Something that God really, really hates. They have desecrated the sanctuary that God loves. Now, I want you to look at this passage. And you notice here that God doesn't say that it is unwise for them to uh, marry a daughter of a foreign god. He doesn't say it's a bit of a risky thing or maybe it's not such a good idea, but he says it is detestable to him. And in verse 12, he goes even further, right? Because it is detestable to him, because it desecrates the sanctuary that the Lord loves, God's people, he says, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, whether he's a priest or a Levite, whatever his standing in society, may he be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob. Now, what he's basically saying here is that if a person chooses to marry a, per, a spouse from who is a daughter or a son of a foreign god, God will cut him off from his people. Remember we said Jacob uh, represents Judah, God's people? And what he's saying here is, if, if a person chooses to marry someone outside of God's people, may God cut him off, even if he brings offerings to the Lord, even if he calls to church, even if he worships God, God will still cut him off from his people. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is that so serious, right? Uh, how is marriage breaking faith with other people? Uh, that's the question that I was asking myself because if I marry someone, we think of it as a very private thing. I choose to marry whoever I want to marry, isn't it? I mean, it's my choice. I mean, I marry you badly. Who suffers but me? Correct? So why is it by marrying someone else they've broken faith with one another? Well, I think it's because... Uh, as we saw in this passage and the passage before, when 
when the people of God marry a daughter, someone who is a son or daughter of a foreign god, they will be led astray and as a result, other people in God's, among God's people will be led astray and eventually they will be judged for it. And if we understand Israel's history, the reason why they went into exile in the first place and were punished by God was because of apostasy, because of idolatry, because they were turning away to other gods. So by marrying someone who believes in a different god, they were actually bringing judgment upon the whole community. Now the million dollar question is, of course, which you're all waiting for is, how much of this applies to us today, right? Isn't that the question that we should be asking? Is this applicable to us today? And uh, it's a difficult question, so much so that I couldn't sleep very well last night. I only got five hours, I think. But I think that it does, isn't it? It does. I think that the principle still applies today. That as Christians, God does not want us to marry people who are sons or daughters of a foreign god. Be it they, they are another religion, be it that they are agnostic, be it that they are atheists. So in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, up here, and in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the principle still seems to be the same. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do, unri- what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Right, The whole idea of uh, uh, bringing together or uniting uh, or, or desecrating God's sanctuary, right? Or what, can, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what harmony is there between Christ and Bilal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. Now I realize that these are really hard words for us to accept, especially in the culture and the times that we live in, because we, we, we feel that <clears throat> marriage is a very private thing, dating is a very private thing, we, we, we should be able to go out whoever we want. But the thing is, as Christians, our lives revolve around serving Christ and, and following Christ. And, and, and our whole life is given over to Christ. Jesus says, right, Luke chapter 14, you know, you must hate uh, even your own life uh, more than loving Him, right? It shows you how much you lo- must love Jesus. So, how then can you share it with someone who, whose life doesn't revolve around Jesus? Now, what is marriage? Okay, uh, today we're going to think a bit about marriage. What is marriage? See, look at what it says there in verse 15. Marriage is this, has not the Lord made them one? When you marry someone, you become one flesh. Okay, in Genesis chapter 2, you can look it up yourself in verse 24, it says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The problem is that you are not really one flesh uh, in practice if you marry someone who doesn't believe in God and Jesus because you're constantly being pulled in different directions. You're not really one at all. Now people will get married and they will say, well, you know, I know that that person, be it a boy or a girl, doesn't believe in Jesus, but you know, it's okay. I will be able to sustain my, uh, my, my, my walk and I will not be led astray. But the problem is that there is always some compromise in some sense, isn't it? 
See, King Solomon, uh, I think all of us will agree, the Bible says, was the wisest man that ever lived. He asked God for wisdom. But Solomon, if you look up here, next slide, 1 Kings chapter 11, he loved many foreign women. Right? And the sad thing is, he married them, and they turned Solomon's heart astray. Now, put up your hand here anybody who thinks they are wiser than Solomon. We are not wiser than Solomon. But yet Solomon was unable to not let his heart be led astray. He didn't convert the wives that he had. He failed to convert them. Maybe his, he was a bit off, you know, his, getting old, his arguments were not so good anymore or something. But, but, but you know, he, he didn't convert them, but they converted him. And he was led astray. And actually, there's a, theolo- there's a debate theologically today, even today, which asks, is Solomon in heaven? When we go to heaven one day, will we see Solomon there? Because, especially from this passage, it seems as if Solomon, as he grew old, his heart was turned away from God. Right? And why did this happen? Because he intermarried with people who believed and followed another God. He was led astray. And once this happens, it affects the community of Christians, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, if you start going out with someone else and you marry them and you're led astray, other people will be affected too. So I'm going to share with you a story of uh, this girl who was a staff worker at university. She was a very good friend of my wife, Cheryl. She went to theological college and she actually went on to full-time Christian work. And she met, uh, she met this guy who was a non-Christian. Actually, he was a professional golfer. Okay? But uh, he was a non-Christian. Not to say that professional golfers are non-Christian, but he was, a, he was a non-Christian and she fell head over heels over him. And uh, everybody said, you know, you shouldn't go out, you shouldn't go out. But they went out together and she tried to convert him, but she never managed to succeed. But eventually got married. And uh, today, um, he never became a Christian and he's divorced her and she's left as a single parent with two kids. But, I mean, irrelevant about whether she got divorced with two, you know, two kids or not. The thing is, by acting in this way, she was acting faithlessly with other people, especially those people that she ministered to. Because A... By doing so, it showed that she didn't take God's word seriously. Because God's word seemed to be very clear in terms of not going out with non-Christians, but here she was doing it. And by her example, she stumbled many people as well because it encouraged other people to go out with non-Christians. And thirdly, it affected her Christian life, her Christian walk. Because she went out with this non-Christian person, it affected her ministry and the way that she was able to live her Christian life. So, my point to you is, we must pay attention very closely to what the book of Malachi says. We must heed the warning. Uh, You know, in our hearts, whether you are 12, 18, 28, 38, if you are single, listen to what God says. You must draw a line in your heart or the sand and say, you know, I will not let my heart go out to those who are sons and daughters of another God. Uh, I might like them. There may not be many Christian people who I find attractive. But this is God's will, isn't it? If I want to be faithful to God, then I must be faithful to the people around me in in who I date and marry. Now, the third uh, thing that he goes to, sorry, the, the second example that he goes to uh, talks not to the single people who are getting married 
or thinking of getting married, but to the people who are already married. Verse 13, it says, another thing you do, so this is a new situation, a new example. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail uh, because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you go ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, uh, the first problem was the mixed marriages. second problem is broken marriages. And he goes on to say, look, you know, you can, you can do the religious thing. You can, you, can, you can go before God and prostrate yourself on your face and cry and weep until the floor is flooded with tears. But God will not listen to you if you are breaking faith with your marriage partner. So you notice here it's quite uh, ironic because they're asking, why God, why aren't you listening to our prayers? Why aren't you accepting our offerings? And they're basically saying, what is wrong with you, God? Why aren't you answering our prayers? But God sort of turns the, the answer back to them and says, the problem is not me, the problem is you. If you have a problem with your prayer life, it is because of your married life. And what was happening here, it says that in verse 14, they were breaking faith, or I guess divorcing, uh, their, the wife of their youth. Uh, now you might sort of ask yourself, how is that possible, right? You know, nowadays people get married like in their 30s. But in, in those days, uh, if you were not married by the time you were 20, uh, that would be very, very unusual. Okay, in those days, everybody was married by the time 30, uh, sorry, 20. Okay, so... Basically, he's saying your original marriage partner. He says they've broken faith with your original marriage partner right, because maybe time has gone on, the marriage has gone stale, and they have divorced her. Now, why is this a problem? Well, in this uh, passage, actually, many commentators say it's the strongest passage against marriage, and, and, the, and the, the passage which elevates marriage in its highest. In verse 16, God says this really striking thing, if you consider it. I hate divorce. When you look in the Bible, God doesn't really hate that many things, but He says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garments, says the Lord, of God, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, we're not quite sure exactly what this uh, means, but what He's basically saying is, I hate divorce, and one way of seeing it is the hatred that God has for divorce is the same hatred that He has for a violent person, a murderer. Right? That, that's how much God hates divorce. Or another way of looking is God hates divorce because He sees it as an act of violence against the oneness of marriage. Now again, mm, these are hard words uh, that God is saying, right? He's saying that divorce is something which should never happen in a Christian marriage. The first thing we have to notice here, again, as we look at this and we apply it to ourselves is, you can't separate your, your religious life from your personal life. You notice that? You can't compartmentalize your life. That means that if in your married life you're not acting properly, then your relationship with God 
is actually affected. Now, uh, I was reading this uh, article in the briefing uh, quite a while ago, and uh, this Philip Jensen wrote this article about how he, he knows some Christians who are super religious. I'm sure we all know them, right? They're always talking about God. They're always pious. They know the Bible really well. They're always praying. They always listen to Christian radio, Christian music, right? And he, uh, the quote there was, he can't, they can't even talk about football without talking about God's blessing, right? But he says that these, some of these Christians that he met are phony and fake. You know why? Because they are adulterous. Some of these people that he actually knows who, are, who pretend to be super religious in this aspect of their life, in the aspect of their married life, are cheating on their wives. They're like a car with no engine. Look good on the outside, but nothing inside. And what is, we have to learn here is we cannot compartmentalize our life. Our relationship with God is not dependent on what we do at church or how we read the Bible, but it's how we treat other people, especially in the most intimate relationships our marriages. You can weep and you wail, but if you're not looking after your marriage in a godly way, God doesn't listen to your prayers. The second thing is we must take our marriage vows very seriously, isn't it? Because it says here in verse 14, the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, when you get married, at least when I got married, I, I tried to memorize my marriage vows, right? Uh, I think I got them a bit mixed up when I was getting married. I had to look at that thing, right? But to repeat them to you, right, is to have and to hold, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Uh, according to God's holy ordinance, I pledge. Okay? And uh, after you do all that stuff, uh, usually we all get this piece of paper, the husband will sign it, the wife will sign it, and the two witnesses will sign it. But God says there is an invisible signature there. And whose invisible signature is that? It is God's signature. He is the witness to your marriage vow. And because He is the witness, He does not want that vow to be broken. Divorce is something that God cannot stand because it's the breaking of a vow. But the problem is that so many people break that vow. In America, apparently, guess what the divorce rate is for evangelical Christians in America? 34% of people in church who got married and are evangelical Christians are divorced. And uh, we look at many famous people and they're divorced and married, many times seem very happy. And we think, well, maybe divorce is not so bad after all. But God says divorce is detestable to him because it is the breaking of your vow. You've acted unfaithfully. So when you think of it, give me, I'll give you an example. You think of a Christian couple divorcing, Christian married couple divorcing, and you hear of someone being murdered. Which one is more shocking to you? We think, well, the murder, that's terrible, right? But actually, when you look at what God says, it's just as shocking to God when, when Christians break a vow as murder. Isn't that what he's saying? He hates divorce as much as he hates a man covering himself with violence and blood. And therefore, we need to keep our promises. Promises are important to keep as Christians, especially married. Now, this is a difficult passage to preach because for some of us, for some people, they are not looking for divorce. They're not wanting divorce. They have no intention to break their vows. And divorce comes to them, right? Maybe it's like a wife beaten up by a husband or children being molested or a spouse committing adultery. Now, if you find yourself in these shoes, then you are, this passage is not really for you, right? You are the victim of divorce. 
But what this passage is saying here is that never be the perpetrator, never, never be the one who breaks faith uh, with his, his or her married partner. Now, verse 15 also says a very interesting thing. It says that has not the Lord made them one. In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. What a strange thing to say, isn't it? But what it's saying is actually marriage is actually in service to God. Do you ever think of it that way? Your marriage is, is actually designed to serve God. It makes sense, right? Because my life is given to serve God. Why should my marriage be any different? My marriage should, be, should actually be made to serve God too. So when we do the premarital counseling class, I remember we have this question where I always ask the married couples, how will you use your marriage to serve God? And it's a good question because we serve God together as a couple. Uh, I was reading this book uh, called Marriage, Sex in the Service of God. And it's a very good book on marriage. And I thought a lot more about marriage after reading it. And he said, look, in the book of Genesis, God said it is not good for man to be alone. And we think, okay, yeah, it's not right. No, I don't like, I don't feel lonely. Right? I need someone to make me feel less lonely. But actually, the context of Genesis is not good for him to be alone in order to serve God in the garden. See, marriage was not just given for the pleasure of man, but also for the, for, for the, for the purpose of serving God in, in, in serving the garden. Therefore, that's why this book is called Sex, Marriage. Sex in the Service of God. Right, so our marriages are not a private thing for ourselves, but as Christians, our marriage was built by God to serve Him. And one of the means of serving Him, as it says here, is because it is the context by which God has godly offspring. Uh, and that doesn't happen. You see, that cannot happen when you have a mixed intermarriage. The purpose of serving God cannot happen in that marriage. When you have a divorced marriage, the context of serving God in that way uh, cannot happen. It doesn't fulfill God's purpose of serving Him. Those types of marriages don't work for serving God. So therefore, if God hates uh, divorce, God wants us to keep our promises, and marriage is for service to God, it says there in verse 15 and 16, what, is, what must we all do? What must the people of Malachi's time do? Twice it says, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith uh, with the wife of your youth. And basically what it's saying is look after the internal and do the external. Guard your spirit means like guard your heart. It's not the Holy Spirit, right? Guard your, guard your spirit inside you. Guard your heart. Guard your inside. And then you do not break faith on the outside. So in the inside, if you're married, do not allow your inside, your heart, to be attracted to other people, to give your love to other people, to break to, to even contemplate breaking your vow to other people. So again, in premarital classes, uh, people are asked, you know, what will happen if you fall in love with someone else when you're married? What is going to happen if you're attracted to someone else? And some people, you know, some people say, well, you know, that will never happen. Uh, well, how foolish they are, right? Because we are always attracted to someone. Even if you're married, are you saying, what, you stop being human? You stop being attracted to people? You don't like people anymore? No, it's, it's not true. We, we, we will always be attracted to people. We are built that way. But we guard our heart. We make sure that we, we stop that attraction to other people. We stop uh, that falling in love process. And how far should you go? Well, if God hates divorce, we have to keep our word. 
and marriage is to serve God, then we go all the way, isn't it, to guard our heart. There is no limit to what we will do to guard our heart, to guard our spirit. So the principal of my theological college gave this illustration once. I can't remember what context it was. He was speaking from the front. And somehow he knew a married couple, uh, a woman who was married, working for a Christian man who was also married. And they were working in a Christian organization, okay? So there are two Christian couples, and they're working in a Christian organization. And she and started to notice that uh, she and her boss started to have a very unhealthy dynamics in a relationship in the office because they were getting attracted to one another. And this is a Christian organization, and they're both very serious Christians. And uh, she was struggling with it, and uh, he recognized it himself, and they tried various things to stop this happening. In the end, she, she, she decided, okay, I must quit my job and get another job. Because she recognized that the job was not more important than her marriage. And I think that's, that's the right principle. If God hates marriage, if your vows are important, if marriage is to serve God, then your marriage is more important than anything else. What? Oh, sorry, God hates divorce. Sorry, sorry, God hates divorce. If God hates divorce, right, and uh, our vows are important and God uses our marriage to serve Him, then our marriage is the most important thing that we have to keep healthy, more than our work, more than our pleasure, more than our hobbies. And that's what this woman was exercising, isn't it? Because she wanted to keep her marriage, so she, she lost her job and got something else, even though it's a Christian organization. So in conclusion, what do we learn today? Well, I think we learn that we are one family, and we are tied and bound because God is our Father and Creator, and therefore we, we need to pay attention to how we treat one another, in faith, in trust, not treacherously. Now, I was reading an article in the Straits Times on Wednesday, it was quite a funny article. Apparently, actually, it's not very really funny, but I found it funny. But a judge in England has ruled that it is not against the law to swear the policeman in England. Did you read that on Wednesday? Yes. So apparently you can say whatever you want to the policeman, but it's not against the law. And uh, according to the article, why is that so? Because apparently swearing and abuse is, is so widespread in England now that apparently you shouldn't be offended as a policeman if someone swears at you. And uh, the other reason, which I found really interesting uh, in the article, was that because also in England, uh, he said, uh, the article writer, was that it, it, it is a, a big no-no, it's a cardinal sin in England to preach morality. Right? That means that it is wrong for me to tell you what to do if it is your own private business. It's very, very impolite for me to tell you what to do, who to marry, what to say, everything, you know, because that's preaching morality. And I think that's exactly the atmosphere of Malachi's day. Right? They didn't want to preach morality. They didn't want to tell people what to do. I mean, after all, you get married, what you do in your marriage is your own private life. But God is very impolite because He is our Father and He is our Creator and we are His people. And He tells us that our relationship to Him is seen by how we treat other people uh, in His family. Whether it's our wives, or our husbands, whether it's who we go out with and the impact it has on other people. So if you are married, what is the state of your marriage? Are you guarding your spirit? Are you guarding your heart and not breaking faith with your spouse? Do you hate divorce and do you nurture your marriage? 
Because if you're not getting that right, then God is saying, well, you can come to church all you like, read the Bible, sing songs, but you are not right with God. If you are single, what is the state of your dating life? Are you careful only to go out with people who have the same father or are you going to have sons and daughters of a foreign god? Uh, will you be like Solomon or the people of Malachi's time whose allegiances and loyalty to God were stolen and who impacted and brought judgment on the rest of their community? See, we are one family in every way. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must not break faith with one another. We must not deal treacherously with one another. We must always deal faithfully with one another as we deal faithfully with God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we really want to pray that these hard words will cause us to pause and think of what it means to be your people. What it means that you are our Father, what it means that you are our Creator, what it means that you are have made us together as one family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that we may be people who are faithful, who deal faithfully with you and the people around us, who keep our word, who keep our vows, who only do things out of love for one another. Dear Father, we pray that we may never deal treacherously or faithlessly or break faith with other people, especially those in your family. Dear Father, help us uh, in this way for we know that there may be people here who struggle, especially in matters of the heart. We know how hard it is when uh, attraction comes and we feel and fall in love. Uh, But we pray that through the Holy Spirit you may make us stronger than that and to resist that temptation. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.